Let's pray. Lord God, um, the reality is that talking about money is hard, Lord. And yet it's clearly so important to you. And Jesus, we just want to be more like you. We want to be like your kingdom. We want to be intimate with you and do the things that you approve of and you tell us to do. So in this time, Lord, would you just transform our hearts so you can help us do that. We pray that in your name, Jesus. Amen. The Gospel of Luke says things like this. Blessed are the poor. Woe to the rich. Jesus comes and he says, he's preaching a gospel that is good news to the poor. He tells people to sell all their possessions. Actually, specifically, when the rich, rich young ruler comes to him and says he wants to follow Jesus, Jesus says, well, sell all your possessions first and then you can follow me. Zacchaeus, wealthy tax collector, when he becomes a follower of Jesus, he repays everybody that he did injustice to fourfold. And then on top of that is generous as well. The widow has only one coin. She puts it in the offering plate. Jesus says she gave more than anybody else, especially the rich and the Pharisees who put in their gold and silver for everyone to see. Jesus talks more about money than he does prayer. In part two of Luke, the book of Acts, the Christians who are in the way of Jesus sell their homes, sell their possessions so that they can give money to the church so that the church can take care of the widow the orphan, and the poor. All these things were in the back of my mind come June, or sorry, January 2020. You see, it was my first time entering into a job with a salary and with benefits. Before working in seminary, I was making like $12,000 a year, so not much. It was easy to manage that. And so when I got this job, I said, I want to make a strict budget that's really generous. And so I start filling out this budget that I downloaded from, from online and, and uh, I'm thinking about things like, well, I probably want to start saving for retirement. Maybe, maybe here's some money towards a Roth IRA. Well, I want to pay off some debt. I need to get an emergency fund. I really love reading books, so I want to have money set aside for that. I like going to restaurants, so I wanted to have a little bit of room for that. Maybe go on a nice date every now and then. Right, all these things start adding up on this list. And at the end of it, I was giving no more in my salary job as I was paying twelve thousand or receiving twelve thousand dollars a year. Jesus' commands for money is hard. And as I'm teaching and the one speaking on this, I just have to acknowledge that I'm not speaking as someone who has this figured out. That there are people who live this out way better than I do. But I'm also someone who really knows the tension right between the hard teachings of Jesus and yet the actions demanded. Right? Because the reason why it's hard is not that it's unclear. Like in this passage, as we heard, he says, sell all your possessions and give to the poor. Like that's not hard to understand. It's very clear, but it's hard to live out. And there's this gap between his hard teaching and living it out. And what this passage does is it builds the bridge. This passage in Luke uniquely contributes to the conversation on money because it builds the bridge to help us get there. 
The clear sign of whether or not you follow Jesus in the book of Luke is what you do with your money. You're a Christian, let me see your checkbook. It's important, and we need this text to help us bridge the gap. And Jesus speaks to us tenderly in it. And so the outline of our sermon is going to kind of follow that. We're going to address why it's hard, and that's, and that's the greed. Then we're going to address the bridge. How do we actually get there? And that's the main point of the sermon, which is this. We just need to rediscover a vision of life where God is at the center. Rediscover a vision of life where God is at the center. And then look at how do we actually live this out. So with that then, we'll go into our first part, identifying why it's hard, which is greed. And not just greed, but what greed is, that it is, it is self-centered. It looks only at our own selves. So it begins Luke 12, verse 13. A man jumps on the scene and he calls out to Jesus and he says, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the family inheritance with me. But he, sa- but he said to him, Man, who appointed me a judge or arbitrator over you? It seems kind of odd that this guy would kind of interrupt Jesus, but this is actually pretty typical. This goes all the way back to Exodus with Moses. Exodus 18, he appoints elders and leaders to oversee different communities and clans so that they could bring their issues. The elder can judge over it, and then the dispute would be settled. And if the dispute was bigger, then it would go to someone like Moses. But what's off about this guy is the way he goes about it. He doesn't come to Jesus asking a question, but he already tells Jesus a verdict. And if we were to reconstruct what's happening, it's probably something along these lines. This guy's brother, or he has a brother, and he's probably the younger brother. The father probably died, and the way that the first century Judaism worked was it function on primogeniture, which is the the fact that the father's land, inheritance, whatever, goes to the eldest son, and then the eldest son gets to distribute it. And so the younger brother can't get his piece of the inheritance if the elder brother is not willing to agree or sign to anything. So in one sense, when when this man is coming to Jesus, he's talking about economic injustice. And honestly, he's probably right about what he's asking Jesus. And yet... Jesus clearly doesn't immediately acquiesce to him. In fact, he poses a question. He says, man, which is not typical. He says, man, who appointed me a judge or arbitrator over you? This reminds me of the rich young ruler. In the same way, Jesus, uh, the rich young ruler comes to Jesus in the book of Luke and says, Good teacher. And Jesus says, Why do you call me good? Right? The very thing that Jesus is going to question or that he does question becomes the point that he's trying to make. This man comes and he says, Look, you're my judge. You're an arbitrator. Tell me what to do. And he's saying, Who, who appointed me judge? Is it not God? Do I not carry the authority of God? Does that mean I not only have the right to judge this situation, but also judge your heart. You see, we're going to see that Jesus is interested not just in one piece of justice, this economic, but the whole thing, and specifically in addressing the injustice that's in this man's heart. And he identifies what it is. Verse 15, 
He said to them, Beware and be on guard against every form of greed, for not even when one has an abundance does his life consist of possessions. Here it is, the problem. Here's what makes it hard to get to the, to the living out the teaching of Jesus. It's greed. And greed in English is the same as greed in Greek. It's an insatiable desire for wealth. And in, and in the context of Luke, it's also a desire for power. But just beforehand, in chapter 11, Jesus talks about the Pharisees and identifies that greed is located in the heart. It's located within. It's a problem within the heart. And there's an injustice going on inside this man's heart. And so he foregrounds the problem greed. And the parable he tells is going to address greed. But it also backgrounds another question. Because he says, greed does nothing for you because life does not exist in possessions. And so that backgrounds the questions, well then, then what is the abundant life? What is the thing that we should be seeking after? If we shouldn't seek possessions, what shall we seek? And we'll get to that later. But unto the issue of greed, why, it, why it's hard. What actually is greed? He tells this parable. Verse 16 says there's a, a land of a rich man who is very productive. So notice that. He's already rich, right? And rich in the Gospel of Luke is negative. It has a negative connotation. So this man's already rich, and then he has a really productive year. And he's so productive that his storehouses can't even hold it. And so he says, well, i got to do something about this. And he says, what will I do? I'll tear down my smaller ones, build even bigger ones, and fill that with my goods that I already have, and now this new abundant crop that I have. And then he has this grand soliloquy, and he pontificates to his own self. And he says, I will say to my soul, or maybe even self in your translation, Soul, you have many goods laid up for many years to come. Take your ease, eat drink and be merry. But God said to him, you fool, this very night your soul is required of you. And now who will own what you have prepared? What's going on? What, I, what is actually wrong with this man? A couple of things are obvious. Number one, he has no consideration of eternity, right? He's just thinking about his next 20, 15 years. He's not thinking about death. And so he, is, he hasn't thought about the reality of what good are these possessions if he's gone. But the second thing is he hasn't considered any other person. Right? He's already rich. He gets even more rich. And he has workers who are working his fields. There's no doubt about that. He has builders who are building his barns. And yet he, he distributes nothing to them but just puts them in a storehouse. There's a great quote from uh, the church father, Augustine, and he says of this man that he didn't realize that the bellies of the poor were a better storehouse than his barns. Now, he didn't care about other people. But not only that, none of his financial planning had anything to do with God. Notice all of the mice. It's my crops, my barns my grain, my goods, my soul. No acknowledgement that God is the, the possessor of the rain and the sun, 
who causes, causes crops to grow and his barns and the people who worked it and his very own soul is God's. And he didn't take that account. And he died that night and his goods were no use to him. You see, that is the great injustice that Jesus is trying to get at. Is that greed is so self-centered that it removes God from the center of the vision of life. That God plays no part. And the problem, I think, in translating this parable to our own lives is that probably most of us aren't like this rich man. All right, we don't have a killer year in the stock market, right? Or maybe we're not even rich to start with. But I think the way we identify with this man is that we all want to be him. You see, we, maybe it's a smaller part of us, or for, for others, it's a big part, right? We, let, let me translate this into a, a different story. A man is doing very well. Right, maybe maybe has 20, 30 li- years to live. He has a killer year in the stock market, makes a bunch of money, and now he gets to sit back and enjoy retirement, kick his feet up, you know, go on the vacations he wants he wants to go on. Basically, all the things that he was worried about are now at ease. Right, that's what he says. Take your ease, be merry. All your worries are taken care of. You have possessions. This is the good life. I think that's a tempting reality for all of us. You know, Jesus says, beware of greed in every form. In our minds, maybe there's a prototype of greed, of of the car or a, a house you know, that, that's so expensive, whatever, that's, that's that person over there. But actually, there's a study done by Barna. Great, they have a lot of great studies on money. But one of the things they identified between those who give and those who keep their money is that those who keep their money, the largest reason why was to maintain a particular lifestyle. In other words, it's not for one single thing, but it, it's a lifestyle that includes all these different pieces. So for me, it was the books, the dinner, right, the dates, the the trips I wanted to go on, the savings, what I, what I wanted for my future, all of these things. The lifestyle I wanted. The lifestyle we want in our retirement. Shoot, I want to get lucky on the stock market, a different kind of stock than, than crops. I want to have a secure life. And yet Jesus is saying the injustice of that is that it is the de-godding of God. That it removes God as the possessor of all things, and the possessor of your own life, and the one who gives all things to you and says, no, I'm going to seek after it and pursue, per, pursue possessions, pursue comfortability. It's idolatry. Which for Jesus, which is consistent throughout all scripture, is the greatest injustice. So then, Jesus is going to use that problem now that he's identified the injustice and recast 
What does actually a vision of life look like with God at the center, where God is the possessor of all things, including our own selves? And that leads us to our second point, the bridge, right? Which is this, that God as our Father will take care of our physical needs and make us rich in the kingdom. That that's what it looks like with a vision of God at the center of our own lives. And we're going to see that just by walking through verses 22 through 32. And, and as we do this, I, I just hope you can just receive Jesus' gracious words because he wait, the way he speaks these is as a shepherd, tenderly speaking to his flock. And we'll hear it. All right, so this is the bridge, rediscovering life, a vision of life with God at the center. This is what it looks like. It's not the greedy man. It's not the possessions. It's none of those things. It's not worrying about retirement. It's not the homes. It's not the cars. It's not the colleges. None of those things. This is what it looks like. Verse 22, Jesus said to his disciples, for this reason, right? So he's connecting it to what he just said. This is all connected. I say to you, do not worry about your life as to what you will eat, nor for your body as to what you will put on. For life is more than food and the body more than clothing. He addresses the logical question of, well, if I don't think about money, if I don't think about possessions, then how will I eat? How will I, how will I survive? And he begins by saying, don't worry about it. Honestly, I almost made the main point of this sermon just stop caring about money. For life is more than food and the body more than clothing. Life is more than just the basic things. And why? Jesus takes lesson from nature. Verse 24, he says, Consider the ravens. The ravens are like the pigeons. They're not like the doves. They're not these beautiful birds. Like the ravens, first century, like they're, they're nothing. Again, it's like a, like a city pigeon. Consider the ravens. For they neither sow, sow nor reap. They have no storeroom nor barn, and yet God feeds them. How much more valuable you are than the birds. Right? He appeals to the ravens, and he uses the same language from the parable. Right? There's no store. They don't have a storeroom. They don't have a barn. They're not seeking after anything, yet God feeds them. Right? Jesus is seeing what's happening in nature and just saying, look, this is God taking care of them. How much more valuable are you than birds? Don't worry about it. If God is intimately involved with ravens, is he not going to be intimately involved with you? And then some practical things, pragmatic thoughts from Jesus. And which of you by worrying can add a single hour to his lifespans? If then you cannot do even a very little thing, why do you worry about other matters? Right? He just says, look, it, worrying doesn't even, doesn't even change your situation. Right? The worry that leads to this greed of seeking possessions to secure your own self and your future, that worry... Man, does that actually help you? Does that change anything? 
Then he uses another example from, from nature. Consider the lilies, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin, but I tell you, not even Solomon in all his glory clothed himself like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass in the field, which is alive today and tomorrow is thrown into the furnace, how much more will he clothe you? There's nothing more glorious in Jewish history than Solomon's temple and his palace. And yet the lilies of the field are more beautifully clothed than even those. And he says, and those lilies are alive today and gone tomorrow. They're worthless compared to you. So why are you worrying? But notice what's at the center. It's God who clothes the lilies. It's God who feeds the ravens. The way Jesus understands the world is that God is the sustainer and provider for all things. And if he's going to sustain the birds, he's going to sustain your life. And he's not naive, right? He knows that there's poor. He talks about poverty all throughout the Bible. And he talks about feeding the poor. But he has a strong vision of God's sustaining power in all of creation that is extended to you and to me. And it gets even sweeter. He says in verse 29, And do not seek what you will eat and what you will drink, and do not keep worrying. For all these things the nations of the world eagerly seek, but your Father knows that you need these things. But seek His kingdom, and these things will be added to you. Do not be afraid, little flock, for your Father has chosen gladly to give you the kingdom. The parallel is made. The seeking of the rich man and the lack of seeking of the birds and the lilies. And yet we seek after all these things which God provides. That is the baseline. Why? Because He is our Father. And He knows what you need. Verse 30. So what then do we seek? We seek His kingdom. He gladly gives His kingdom. Verse 32. But I just hope you hear Jesus' tenderness. Verse 32. Do not be afraid, little flock. He knows that it's hard for us. He knows that we worry. He's not speaking out of condemnation. He's speaking out of tenderness. Don't worry about these things, but seek the kingdom. Right? God is going to give you that. He's going to give you even more abundance. That's the abundant life, His kingdom, where there's peace, joy, love. Everyone's treated as valuable. Where justice on all fronts, economic, racial, interrelational, all kind of ways, justice takes place. Seek that kingdom and you will have an abundant life. You know, returning to that Barna study, something that it had pointed out was that those who give money 
give when they feel like they have an excess. The, the article says this, most American donors still give when they feel content and ready to give. And in this article, they interpret that as something kind of negative, that they should see giving as, as more of like a duty, like this is something you're supposed to do even when you don't have enough. And what I want to say is that that's wrong. That the point Jesus is making is that you're right, we should give when we feel like we have an abundance, when we feel content and ready to give. But the way we understand that, or the way we see when we have enough to give, is not your house, is not your car, is not when you have an abundance of, of, of money, but it's the abundance that you have in the kingdom of God, in which God gives that generously to those who seek it. That is your source of abundance. That is your source of security. Because that is something that lasts into eternity. It lasts forever. You see, recapturing, rediscovering a vision of life with God at the center assuages the worries and the fears of not seeking possessions. But it also allows us to then seek something that actually matters forever, which is God's kingdom. And not only does it just matter forever, but it's just way better. I mean, the things listed off, joy, unending joy, love, intimacy with the Lord. That is what is, is awaiting us, and, and it's being given to us, verse 32, freely. God is gladly giving it to us, and so, therefore, the result is sell your possessions away. Give everything you have away. That is the result, right? That is the action. That's what it looks like, verse 33 not making this up, that's what Jesus says. Verse 33, sell your possessions and give to the poor. Make yourselves money belts, money belts which do not wear out. An unfailing treasure in heaven where no thief comes near nor moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. You see, we see in this action step that Jesus returns to economic injustice. Right, verse 13, we began with economic injustice, and now we're returning to it. But Jesus has spent all this time reframing it so that the call to economic justice is not one that's based on some thin variant of social justice, but is one based on a cosmic justice that places God in His right place as provider, sustainer over all things, possessor of all things. From there, economic justice takes place. And I want to return to that, and Jesus returns to that, because it matters. Greed is not just an individual thing, but it has communal and detrimental effects. And I want to provide three examples of that. I just recently went to the Johnson County Museum, and I would really suggest that you would go uh, if, if you can find the time. Actually, when I showed up, um, there was no one, there was literally no one there. So if you're worried about being with people, no one there. Anyways, went to the Johnson County Museum just in light of all the racial tension to learn the history of our county. And what I saw in that was not only good things, some really bad things, but also how greed played a part in the racialization of Johnson County and of Kansas City. And I'll give, give three examples. So, for example, the first example. At the founding of Johnson County, 
back in the 17th century, right? Native Americans uh, were living here. And into the 18th century, there was treaty set up for the Shawnee tribe to live here. And basically, they said, hey, you can live here because they thought the land was infertile. As soon as they found out that the land was fertile, that money could be made off this land, they renegotiated treaties, mistreated the Native Americans, and pushed them off the land into Oklahoma, destroying that community. Second example. 20th century, as African Americans had moved into Kansas City, Missouri, there was plenty of covenants, right, that blocked African Americans for living in white neighborhoods. They couldn't get homes. And then within their neighborhoods, they couldn't get any loans. There was a practice called redlining. But there was something even, even more clearly greedy. It was a practice of something called blockbusting. Blockbusting was basically this. A realtor would come in to a white neighborhood and say, look, African Americans are moving into your neighborhood and it's devaluing your neighborhood. The value of your homes are going down, and so you should sell it, move out, and get away as, as this is contaminating your neighborhood. And so what they would do was the, the, the white people in the community would sell their homes at a deflated rate. They would leave, white flight, and then... As African Americans would move in, the realtors would sell it at an inflated rate. And so they're just profiting off of racism. Right? The greed and racism were intricately tied. Last example, in Olathe, there's a historic black community after the Civil War living there. And they went into that community and, and redid it and increased the value and pushed out the African Americans who were living there for the sake of money. And those, those things have historically destroyed those communities and had detrimental effects. Right? Economic injustice is a real issue and Jesus, and Jesus wants to speak into it and it's important that he does speak into it. But he wanted to frame it and he does frame it in terms of a cosmic justice of God as being God and possessor over all things. In other words, that the reason to help the poor is having a right understanding of God in our lives. I want to give a few examples of some people that I think uh, did, have done this well. Um, because probably the best move isn't to sell our homes and to give our money away. Although if that is how God moves you, do it. Um, but one of the things that help out the poor the most are two things, job opportunities and education. The great thing about our church is that our senior pastor, Tom Nelson, has written a book called The Economics of Neighborly Love, and that gives great practical wisdom on how to use our finances and generosity to create job opportunities and help education to restore communities of the poor. But not only that, there's a friend of mine, Mark. He's done several things to embody Jesus' teaching. First thing, he's a pharmacist. And when Haiti was in a crisis, he went to Haiti and he helped build a pharmacy, trained up people from Haiti to run the pharmacy, and then take over the pharmacy, and then take care of their own people. Second thing he's done is he's, um, 
He's brought in a person from a, a Haitian orphanage and paid for their junior college education and then also will pay for their four-year university education. He also has helped an Indian, uh, an Indian man uh, living just outside Hyderabad that he befriended on mission trips uh, start a seminary, help fund the seminary to teach people the gospel so they can go out into unreached people groups and share the gospel and raise people up in it. I mean, that is something real and practical of living out, selling your possessions and giving to the poor. Now I realize that that's hard, that we're not going to be a mark. But how do we move forward? You know, for me, I, I started with the reality of my own situation, that this is something that I really struggle with. And, and, and yes, we need to rediscover a vision, a vision of life with God at the center. But I'm also reminded of another instance in Luke. Right? We started in verse 13 with someone demanding for their inheritance. And the next time we see that is in the story of the prodigal son. The prodigal son comes to the father, demands his inheritance, gets it, squanders it, just totally self-centered and squanders all of his money and comes back to the Father and repents and the Father receives him. You see, the issue of it all, as we saw, was a heart issue. It was greed. And it ends, where we started with greed with a heart issue, it ends with a heart issue. Verse 34, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. As we struggle with generosity, we need new hearts. To rediscover a vision of life with God at the center, we need new hearts. And so for me, and maybe for you, the first step is repentance. Right? Greed doesn't keep you out of the kingdom. Unrepentant greed keeps you out of the kingdom. And our first step is to receive God's forgiveness and for Him to put a new heart in us. It's made possible by the blood of Jesus so we could become more like Him and move into a life that Jesus describes where we're not worrying about our finances, we're not worrying about our clothing, our houses, but we get to just seek after the kingdom of God and sell our possessions and give to the poor. So I'm going to pray for us now and ask that God would do that. Lord God, thank you for this word. Thank you for this text. We need you to bridge the gap in our lives, Lord. Would you change our hearts, Lord? I repent of my greed, my focus on building my own wealth and security and not trusting that you are provider of all things. Lord, would you give us an imagination and a new heart that we may sell our possessions and give to the poor that we would so desire your kingdom, that that would be our source of abundance, that giving away money is just easy because we already have a life of abundance that is eternal. We pray all these things in your name, Jesus. Amen. Well, our service 
we'll end there. And as our benediction, I want to read to us from Luke 4. Our sending out. Just a reminder of the good news that Jesus preaches. It's this. The Spirit of the Lord has come upon Jesus because He has anointed Him to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent Him to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind and to set free those who are oppressed, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. Go out and walk in that gospel which renews us and sets us free from greed and empowers us to share the good news to the poor. Amen.